0: we've been using a reflection on the teaching or an expression of the law of karma uh, in the equanimity practice. And I have said a little bit about it, but I think it's a subject that's worth spending a little more time and, and uh, really exploring in a bit more depth because the teachings on karma are central to, to what the Buddha taught and... Um, They're woven throughout the teachings, their understanding karma is seen as an aspect of right view, very central, but there's a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about this teaching. And I think this stems at least in part from the fact that the word karma, karma is Sanskrit, in Pali we would say kamma, but the word karma has become part of everyday speech over quite some time now, and it gets used a lot and um, in, in a casual way. And there's some connection to what the teaching was about but it's it's tossed around and it it I think this tends to reinforce a superficial and rather simplistic understanding, you know, and we hear things like, you know, good karma and bad karma and instant karma's gonna get you and um, my karma ran over your dogma is a bumper sticker I saw in the states <laughs> and uh, it's it's you know it's just it doesn't really um these words you know there's some some connection to what it's about, but it's um, it's really it's overly simplified and and the subject the subject karma when we when we um <clears throat> engage with this and start to look at it, it's directly linked to. Uh, the topic of rebirth, which is woven throughout uh, the teachings, but it's also a question that leads to a lot of confusion and questions. and And these two teachings are are somewhat inseparable in a certain way. And you know, these questions come up: Do I have to believe in rebirth? That I don't believe in it? it doesn't make sense to me. Do I have to somehow persuade myself to believe in this? Or, you know, if there is no self, then then who or what is reborn? And Um, who experiences the fruits of past actions. And uh, is the suffering that I'm experiencing or that another person is experiencing the result of some something I did in some past life? Is it somehow my fault? You know, and there's this, almost this blaming quality there as though karma somehow functions like fate and it's like some force that emerges out of the past that, We're somehow responsible for it, but powerless to do anything about it. And um, kind of a fatalistic thing, feeling with that. And I think we need to be really careful that we don't use reflections on the law of karma to account for someone's present circumstances or to address issues like illness or social injustice or... These things that come in life, as though we can somehow reduce everything down to the unfolding of karma. And I think this this is a again it's a overly simplified way of looking at this that really just adds to the suffering in the world. And I don't think that this teaching on karma was ever intended to be used as some kind of, you could say, reflective device to account for. Um, why things are the way they are. I think it's a mistake to try to use it this way. But I think it's very valuable and useful as a tool to help us focus and connect with how we respond to the present. It can serve as kind of a focal point for choices that we make in response to what is happening in the moment. So I think it's very helpful in that. And so when we start to explore this topic, when I um introduced the equanimity and and uh, things Jill has said also since then is um, is is it it's really a teaching on cause and effect, and it's important to bear in mind that the functioning of cause and effect in the world in our lives is very vast and complex, and one teacher likens it to uh, a field or even an ocean that we live in an ocean of cause and effect and i like this image because it it has this sense of vastness and and also the complexity of it all so this ocean of cause and effect we could say it's a vast network of what we could see as causal threads or causal ripples and they shift and rebound and volitional actions that we might take, our actions are one thread. And someone um it may have been the teacher Gil Fronsdahl, who we've been some for some reason we've been quoting him a lot this retreat. I'm not sure where this came from, but someone had this image of a, a very still pond and into which we toss a pebble. And when we toss a pebble into that still water, we get a series of ripples. And if we toss another pebble and another pebble, we'll get more ripples. And those second and third ripples will bounce off of one another and off of the first set of ripples. And those in turn will reverberate and cause a complicated set of um, these wave patterns that probably people who study fluid dynamics and things could analyze that. But then you keep tossing pebbles in. And it gets very complex, as ripples and their interactions, right? It would be impossible to tease apart and find just one of them. <laughs> After a while, you couldn't do that. You'd have to trace to account for... So if we think of the ocean of cause and effect, in order to account for the way things are in this present moment, you would have to trace back every ripple to the beginning of beginningless time, tease that all apart the buddha said that that to understand karma completely in that kind of way was he, he was one of what he called the imponderables and he cautioned against trying too hard because your head will explode if you um, i think into seven pieces um, i'm not sure why seven but anyway that's just an image but probably not you know warning us against getting too tangled up in that So you could say when he looked at this complex ocean of cause and effect rippling over time, he chose to focus on one particular aspect of it, and that's the area of our intentional actions. We spoke about intention in the morning instructions. This is the mental factor, this impulse that gives rise to actions of body, speech, and mind. The word in Pali is chetanā. And it points to the fact, as I said uh, the other day, the word karma literally means action. And all actions of body speech or, or even in the mind, they have their genesis. They take birth in the mind. And the Buddha, there's a very famous quotation from the Dhammapada where he said, mind is the forerunner of all things and then went on from there. It says, if if one acts With a pure and wholesome, with a pure mind and wholesome intention, happiness follows. If one acts with an impure mind, with unwholesome intentions, suffering follows. In the same way as the wheel of the, of the cart follows the foot of the ox. I'm shortening that very much in that. And so, the Buddha stressed that intention lies at the root of the process and the unfolding of karma. And he said, intention, I tell you, is karma. Intending one does karma, one does actions. One acts by way of body, speech, and mind. Now this, this very specific mental factor, chetana, of intention, is in and of itself, it's like electricity or something. It's, it's neutral. It's just a motivational force or not motivational, I want to be careful. It's just gives rise to action. But it is flavored or um it can be um colored by or accompanied by a host of uh potential um other <coughs> mental factors or qualities which we could think of as motivations. So I'm making a the distinction there between this purity of intention, which is just like Kind of like electricity, you could say. It gives, gives rise to action in a very, in just a pure way. But the motivation that accompanies it is key to understanding this. So, for example, the intention to do something could be motivated by greed, or aversion, or desire, or love, or generosity, or delusion, or wisdom, and so on. And it's this this quality of the motivational energy that is key to understanding how karma functions. It's this um, the the karmic weight or power of something we do is tied to this motivation because the the it doesn't reside within the the karmic potency of something is not found within the action because the very same action could um, be born of very different kinds of motivations. So, for example, you could gather various combustible materials, some paper and twigs, and maybe even get some um, some flammable liquid or, or something, and you could use that to start a fire. And you could be in a situation where you're doing that in order to uh, cook food to feed your family, or you could be an arsonist who's been hired to burn down a building and the actions of creating the fire would could look very could be the same actions exactly or you could take a crowbar and and a heavy sledgehammer and use it to break down a door and in one case you could be uh, a firefighter who is trying to break down the door to get into a building to rescue someone who's trapped or you could be uh, a thief <laughs> who's breaking in in order to steal things. So the action could look the same, but the motivation behind it is very different in those examples. And so also it's good to remember that there are lots of things that happen that are directly the result of actions that we do that are not born. There, there's, there isn't this, um, there's an intention in in the fact that we take a step, for example, but, there's no uh, motivation to uh, to commit har- to cause harm, for example. So let's say um, it's been windy here, and there are a lot of leaves around, and the leaves have blown up on the walkway, and they happen to have covered over where there's a, a snail that's uh, crossing the path and has taken a break and is resting in the middle of the path, and you come along and you step on the leaves, and you crush the snail. So, through no um you didn't intentionally want to harm the snail you didn't know it was there. These things happen things in the realm of what we could call accidents so there's there's no um karmic weight you could say to the crushing of the snail, the taking of that life, but there is or there could be a rippling on a causal thread that follows on from that, so maybe somebody is following you down the path and and the leaves have moved aside and they see the crushed snail and they don't know what it is and they, they jump aside to avoid it as they're putting their foot down and they slip and they fall and they break their leg and you hear them, uh, you've gone down the path, you hear them cry out in pain and you rush to their rescue and you help get them to the hospital and on the way you kind of make a nice connection and um, you fall in love and then you just decide, well, after you, on your way back from the hospital, you buy a winner, winning lottery ticket and you get married and you live halfway ever after. So, the, 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 the death of the snail is part of this causal flow, right? But, but it's not, you know, it, it's, it doesn't point necessarily, and there's some aspects of that that we could say are are part of the karmic uh, flowing. So there's, there's this very complicated series of events there. And intentional action is is only part of that. There's all kinds of factors. So just as we could see like a seed from, from a plant or a tree has the potential, when planted, if the conditions are right, it can produce a whole new plant or a whole new tree, which in turn can produce hundreds or thousands of seeds or fruits, each of those flowing on and... Um, in the same way, inten- intentional actions and the motivations that accompany them have the potential to bring about all kinds of uh, fruits, you could say. And so in understanding the unfolding of karma, there's the um, broad understanding that actions born of wholesome, skillful motivations, intentions accompanied by skillful, wholesome motivations, will tend to yield wholesome, beneficial, pleasant results and the opposite of that. And so the reason that I think that the Buddha chose to emphasize this area, intentional action and motivation, when looking at the whole complex ocean of causality, is because this is where we um, have sort of the ability to add something to to the whole process. Um so it's it's empowering for us because we can choose to plant the seeds of our future happiness or future suffering and and we have a choice there it's really up to us in a way and so we are encouraged then to look at and take responsibility for the chain the aspect of this causal flow of cause and effect that has to do with um, our in our intentional actions and for the mental qualities that are giving rise to that. We can add something to the process and make choices that directly impact our happiness and the course of our life. So although, as I was saying, we couldn't understand the complexity of all of the uh, flow of causation that would lead to um, things being the way they are, we can use this understanding to choose how to respond to life in an ongoing way and this is really you could say the locus of our practice or uh, where the spiritual life happens one of our uh, colleagues uh, named Guy Armstrong a teacher in the United States he calls karma the science of happiness which I think is a nice a nice name for this uh, teaching this understanding and if we really understand it, we can see it is a recipe for happiness mundane happiness in our daily lives uh and happiness in in the way um that it steers our life towards freedom so there's a lawful way that this all unfolds and we can use this example of planting a seed if we plant a certain kind of seed, let's say we plant daisy seeds, we're going to get daisies. We're not going to get sunflowers, right? That's just nature. That's just, you know, common sense, right? There's a lawful way this kind of seed will yield this kind of fruit, this kind of plant. And so um, the same thing that we can see in terms of uh, the unfolding of karma that the same lawfulness applies, and there's the understanding in the teachings that um, this this lawful unfolding, this causal unfolding, um, functions in terms of of a single life, and it functions in terms of from one life to the next. That there's a carryover there. Now, as I was saying, the idea of rebirth may have be meaningless to us. Might not have any connection. We might even feel like, I don't even want to go there. It brings up a lot of resistance in some of our minds. But we don't have to believe in it to understand. We can see this within um, a single life. We can see how it unfolds moment by moment, this conditioning effect. So there's an illustration that I like to use that really shows how how this works, mind moment by mind moment, you could say. So let's say that you have a a, a row of candles, and the first one is lit. They're maybe kind of like these ones here, and you. But these ones would be difficult to use, but taller taper style candles, and you take the first candle, and you use it to light the second one, and then that first one goes out. And then you take the second one and you move it and you light the, th- the third one and the second one goes out. We're not taking the flame off of one candle and putting it onto another one. It's not the same flame, but there is a conditioning effect and those flames resemble one another pretty closely, Right? So it conditions, we move, the conditions are there for a new flame to arise. And again, and again, and again. And it could move down. So we can see each mind moment of a life in the same way. There's a conditioning effect. There is this, um, um, there is this carryover in terms of, um, you know, there's, there's a, conditioning there's continuity in that but it's not the same thing <laughs> so it's a lawful process and it's not random when we move when we create the conditions for a flame to rise it's going to arise so when we ask a question who or what is reborn we need to be careful that we don't solidify this process of conditioning into a thing like as if we took the flame, I'm going to take this one off and I'm going to move it over and put it onto this one. So we have to be careful what is actually essentially a process to not turn it into something with ongoing thingness to it. So we can see rebirth in the same way, mind moment by mind moment, and just carrying over. So in in the teaching, the understanding is that the moment of... Um, that the the consciousness at the moment of death conditions the rebirth consciousness. It's one way you can talk about it. But you can see that's one moment to the next, that you don't have to see it, you know, each moment is a life in, es- in essence, in this way of looking at this. So there's no thing, but there is continuity and there is this flow of conditioning that um, makes it feel like it's, a thing <laughs> can feel and kind of look like a thing, the same thing. And it just doesn't matter whether it's within one li- lifetime or countless lifetimes. It's not important. That doesn't matter in a, in some ways. But So the key to all this is that our actions bear results. There is this conditioning effect. The uh, Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche was once asked, the question, what was reborn? And he said, your neuroses. So um, that's <laughs> maybe not that great of a thought, but in a way we could see, okay, yeah, we gotta, we gotta keep looking at it till we get it figured out. There's a well-known sutta, one of the suttas in the middle-length uh, discourses. I think we've both referred to, to parts of this. It's a, a, a the teaching where the Buddha is instructing his son, Rahula, and he says, I'm going to read part of it. What do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? For reflection, sir. In the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, and mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to do a bodily action, you should reflect on it. This bodily action I want to do Would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Would it be an unskillful bodily action with painful consequences and painful results? If on reflection you know that it would be unskillful with painful consequences and painful results, then any bodily action of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, that it would be skillful, with wholesome consequences and wholesome results, then it is fit for you to do. He goes on to instruct him uh, during actions of speech, and um, he says that he should reflect before he does it, while he's doing it, and afterwards, to really find out was it skillful or not, because sometimes we might not get that information up front. We might realize it in the middle of doing it, And sometimes we look back and say, whoa, there was this unskillful aspect there that I didn't notice. So we might think, wow, if I have to do that before I do everything, I'm, I'm just never gonna get any, I'm never gonna do anything. (laughs) It'll take too much time or, or it'll lead to a life where there's just no chance for being spontaneous or something. But I think we actually can see that it's just part of of living a more conscious life, which is really, in great part, the goal of our practice is to live a more aware and conscious life. And so we pay attention to our actions. We see what are the motivations in the mind. We see the results and we learn from that and take responsibility for it. And this reflection that the Buddha offered to his son gives us a very clear set of guidelines if it's going to cause me to suffer, someone else to suffer, or both of us to suffer, it's not a good thing to do. It's just common sense, really. Someone said that the whole of the teachings is advanced common sense. I think that's actually very true in some ways. So it's said that a Buddha, and only a Buddha, can understand the complexity of the unfolding of workings of karma over a single lifetime or over multiple lifetimes but we can get a sense for this how this unfolds in our direct experience in some simple ways so for example we can notice the way that past actions we we have done leave a leave an imprint in the mind and there are sometimes very strong feelings that can can arise in regard to past actions we may have done and memories where we may have caused pain or suffering. I know a time when I was uh, on retreat my first started and I was, had a lot of memories come up about times when as a, a young boy, I was very cruel to insects, often the case, young boys and uh, children maybe in general. And, um, you know, it, it was. I was also kind to them. I had both, but I did horrible things, and it just brought up such um, feelings of regret and remorse and deep, deep sadness for having caused this suffering. And um, you know, there's that that imprint from those actions. We can see that there's that fruit in terms of of the, these feelings that arise in the mind and the heart. Feelings of regret and remorse, or we may have memories of past skillful and wholesome and good things we've done, and the opposite will happen, and the mind will brighten, and there'll be feelings of of uh, happiness and gratitude and um, pleasant pleasant mind states. So the, the our actions, the results of them, condition the mind states. We can see, um, and this impacts then our meditation. Right. If we're sitting there with a lot of regret and remorse, there'll be a certain quality. If the mind is happy and bright, it'll be it'll affected it in that way. We can see the workings of of uh, cause and effect and and karma in uh, terms of kind of habitual patterns, mental patterns that lead to kind of um, predictable behaviors that we or another person might do we We could call this the development of our personality. and we tend to think of our or another person's personality as as something that's kind of fixed and we're this way or we're near that way, and like it's just a thing like it's set and fixed. and we don't see the fact that what's really happening is that over time, through repeatedly doing something, we condition the tendency, the likelihood we will do it again. We wear neural grooves <laughs> in a way. You know, People who study these things could talk about uh, neural pathways that, that get habituated, and then it's just likely to go down that. And so when we act out of uh, unskillful mental states of fear or anger, confusion... In a way, we're practicing those. We're conditioning the likelihood that we will act in those ways again. When we act out of um, kindness and generosity and wisdom and clarity, then then that also has that conditioning effect. The likelihood of doing that in the future is greater. And so, we can actually cultivate and incline the mind towards um, towards goodness. In the, in the, and we can see the, um, uh, the the practice and the cultivation of the brahma vihara as, as, a, as a, an aspect of this by practicing uh, developing kindness we can we, we shape and change the the mind and kind actions are more more likely to flow in our lives we can practice refraining from what's unwholesome the same way and it conditions the mind and so, in this idea of karma as a science or recipe for happiness, we can see that what what's happening there is that we we are given, we take on a, a lot of uh, great responsibility for our lives in terms of the choices we make and the way that this impacts our the unfolding in the course of our life. And so we start with our inner world and the motivation that... Uh, accompanies our actions, gives rise to our actions, I should say. And we pay attention to that so that we can decide which which of these motivational energies do I want to follow. <laughs> we can look and see. Mindfulness gives us the, the possibility to actually see that so that we're not just acting things out in on automatic, acting out these habitual patterns. We can change that. So I'm shifting gears a little bit, but it has uh, a thread uh, that will tie back into this uh, look at karma. One time the Buddha was asked by someone if he could summarize his entire teachings in one sentence. And you know, if you've looked at it, there's volumes and volumes of teachings. He said, yeah, I can do that. And he uttered four words sabbe dhamma nalam abhini wesaya, in Pali, usually translated as nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. Don't cling to anything. Or you could change it, don't hold on to anything, or let go of everything, let everything be. And then he stressed, he said, if you've heard this, you've heard the whole teaching. If you practice it, you've practiced the whole teaching. If you um, uh, gain the fruits, receive the fruits of practicing it, you've, re- you've received all possible fruits of the teachings. That's pretty strong. Those are strong statements. And really, if you look, everything he said, anything any one of us, either of us might say, is in service of this teaching. Nothing whatever is to be clung to is to be held on to And so we explore this simple teaching, profound but simple teaching in all kinds of ways in our practice. So obvious ways and subtle ways. But at the heart of this these all of the teachings is this understanding that so much of the suffering and stress that we are we that happens in our lives is the result of this grasping or clinging. This movement of the mind holding on. And so, one way that we can see this is in terms of our relationship to, uh, memories of past hurts, past harms, these painful memories, and, and how, how we're relating to those. As I was saying, it's very common people report on retreats having the experience of being flooded by memories at times seems to happen quite often. And sometimes there are things we have no recollection of even didn't even remember they happened. Sometimes people, something will come up that, that was um, somehow maybe repressed or somehow it kept out of the consciousness and and people can be very surprised by memories of things and, all kinds of memories, but sometimes they're really difficult. Not always. But sometimes they're very difficult, painful memories of things, like I was saying, my memories of this cruelty to these uh, these beings and um, and the, the the painful mind states and, and the suffering in my heart and remembering these things. Sometimes there are things that we've done like that. Sometimes there are things that happened to us. And these memories and the associations and the energy there can trigger um strong reactions in the body and mind and take us right back to the original situation and the suffering and It can become really present and really intense in the mind, even though the original thing may have happened a long time ago way long ago and we we all um I had one experience where I was you know we talked about practicing these brahma viharas for. Uh, different categories of beings, and, and one of them being the difficult relationship. I like to say the difficult relationship, not the difficult being. On the chance that I am someone's difficult being, I'd rather be a difficult part of a difficult relationship than, <laughs> than a difficult being. But I was practicing metta for this, this person and, who I hadn't seen in a long time, and I thought about the person and an, inter- an interaction where I felt like I was misjudged and um, blamed and uh, treated very badly. And it was just like, bam, it's right there. And we've all seen how this can happen. Remember something and it's, it's right there. It's become so close. So finding ways to unbind this through um, the practice of forgiveness is potentially very powerful for us and uh, it's a tangible expression of non-clinging, non-grasping, letting go. If it's done skillfully, we're letting go of this clinging to these past hurts in a way that just keeps us bound to a cycle of suffering. And so we have the chance that we can release this. Now this is not something we can just decide to do and it's gonna happen. But the possibility is there, and it can be profound. And so we have to, when we approach this, we have to do it delicately. We have to acknowledge that sometimes that suffering does happen, bad things happen. Sometimes we cause the suffering. Sometimes someone else causes it, and sometimes both, and sometimes it just happens. And it's not fair. And this is not about that. Fairness doesn't figure into this. I think that the memories of past injuries, things that happen to us, get stored in a. I think they're stored in the brain. Probably people who study the brain, maybe some of you have. I think they're stored in a very particular kind of way, and they get easily triggered because they have to do with our self-preservation, and um, and our safety and self-care, and so uh, they get they get easily brought up by by things that that are related or or trigger those things and and we get very extreme cases or examples of this uh, for in trauma situations and post traumatic stress where um something can trigger these uh, this this trauma response, and it's really intense and very very um painful and powerful uh, and difficult for people and so not finding a way to unbind this can leave us caught in a cycle of suffering where we never can find any freedom, never find any movement away from this. But through this um, skillfully um, coming into a relationship with uh, forgiveness, there's a possibility that we can let the past become the past, not forgetting something, but that we can let it, not dictate who we are in the present, that we can live in the present with some wisdom and strength and personal power um, and, and undo this cycle of suffering that can get locked into our system. And so all kinds of things are important. I can't spend too much time at this, but timing is critical. We cannot do this unless we feel Pretty strong and balanced. If we're too close to the situation, we, we can't do it. We have to take care of ourselves and find ways to feel safe and feel strong and, and feel okay. You know, so we can't, sometimes people feel like, oh, I have to start working on forgiveness and it's just not the right time. It's too soon. Cause it can be scary and not, it's not easy. And if we feel unsafe, we cannot do it. And when we do decide maybe we're ready, we have to go really close, carefully, and slowly, and just plant little seeds. It's a delicate thing There's a story I want to uh, tell that I thought of when I was thinking about this subject and um, it points to some inc- incredible trans it's an incredible transformation that has that came through uh, the power of forgiveness. And it's, it's, it's a, it's an incredible, it's a pretty strong story. And it, um, maybe, you know, I don't want it to set too high a bar, but it shows that what's possible through this, uh, letting go. So this was a story that took place in the United States in the city of Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is in the north central part of the country. And uh, there was a woman there. It happened and started, the story started in 1993 with a woman named Mary Johnson. And her only son, whose name was Laramium, was killed in a gang-related violent uh, altercation. And um, there was a police investigation and a 16-year-old boy named O'Shea Israel was arrested and he confessed to the killing. And he was 16 at that time and there were two years of Uh, hearings and appeals and court processes and he finally went to a trial when he was 18 so he was an adult and was put on trial as an adult and he was convicted of second-degree murder which is a i don't know how you what it's like here but it's a it wasn't premeditated Um, but he was sentenced this this 18 year old was sentenced to 25 years in prison and the woman whose son was killed, she said at that time, I wanted him locked up, put in a cage because I thought he was an animal and he deserved that. But she worked on forgiving because this this um, anger and hatred, was, she said, was eating her up. And, and she's, for 10 years, and she was a, a religious woman. She worked with her church and supportive family and people um, in her life. And she felt that some transformation and change was happening over this long period of time. And in 2005, so he went to jail in 95, 10 years later, 2005, she decided she wanted to find out if if she really had. She felt like she had forgiven this boy, young man now, grown man, and she wanted to find out if it was true. She said, I have to make sure I've truly forgiven him, that I don't still have all that hatred. And so she went to the prison and she asked if she could visit him. And he turned her request down. Um, she asked repeatedly over nine months. And he finally said, okay. He didn't want to meet with her. And um, she said, we had a conversation and he admitted what he had done. And he said, um, she, she said, I told you in court that I'd f- I forgave you. But today from the bottom of my heart, I can truly say, and I want you to know that I actually do forgive you. And the boy, the man, O'Shea, he said it was very powerful and moving to meet her. I felt extremely compelled to ask her, may I give you a hug? Because I wanted to show her my genuineness. Because he had gone through his own process with this. And she said that she, she had this experience where she fell and he had to catch her and hold her. And she said um, she f- she said, "I felt this thing leave me, and I instantly knew that all the hatred, the bitterness, the animosity, and all that junk I had inside me for twelve years, I knew it was over with it was done instantly it was gone, so she had a kind of cathartic experience there when she met him, and they began to meet regularly. She went to visit him regularly after that, and they they developed a relationship like a mother and son. This is the the man who had killed her son, and he finally got out of jail in two thousand twelve. And she introduced him. They had met for years, um, became very close. She introduced him to the landlord in the building where she lived. He moved in and became her neighbor. And she said, "I treat you as I treat my as I would treat my own son. My natural son is no longer here. I didn't see him graduate from school, but now you're going to college." And maybe I'll have the opportunity to see you graduate. I never saw him get married, but maybe I'll have that opportunity with you. And she said, unforgiveness, that's her word, not forgiving. Unforgiveness is like a cancer. It will eat you from the inside out. It's not about that other person. Me forgiving him does not diminish what he's done. He murdered my son. The forgiveness is for me. This is something very critical. Is this is something we're doing to take care of our own mind and heart? But you can see in the story that she got to know him, and and the the compassion I think that she felt for what how this boy had lived, that he would come to the point where he could commit a murder. So compassion was the doorway. So she didn't forgive the action. (laughs) Murdering her son was not okay. Some actions are not forgivable. That's not forgivable. But she could forgive this being who acted out of confusion and pain and all of his conditioning. That's a possibility for us. We have to make a clear separation there. Really important. So it's an internal process about taking care of ourselves, releasing our own the, gri- the grip in our own mind and heart because otherwise we're letting the past dictate who we are in the present we lose sight of the fact that that um, ultimately you know it's up to us to take care of ourselves and and forgiving does not free the other person from from you know having to take responsibility for what they did and the karmic weight of that and this man O'Shea he said I haven't totally forgiven myself yet I'm learning I'm trying to forgive myself and I'm growing towards that growing towards trying to forgive myself so he has to look at his own his own stuff so this points to an important understanding because how we are in the present how we choose to live the choices that we make have this some powerful influence on how karmic actions unfold. and So um, you could say that our past unwholesome actions are conditioned, informed by goodness and wholesome actions that we do now. They change the course of that. Nothing is fixed. It's not you do this and this is what results. It's not a one-to-one uh, thing like that at all. And there's this incredible story. I'm going to run a little long tonight, but there's this story of that's famous that i 'm sure many of you have heard the story of a uh, uh, Angulimala i 'll try to keep it very short. This was a guy his his given name his name from his parents was ahimsa, which means um, harmless. I if he was given that name, but he was he, he was convinced persuaded by a, a a teacher who was jealous of his goodness that he had to um, he had to kill a thousand people and he he started doing this and he would chop off their fingers and and the word anguli mala means garland of fingers he would wear them strung on a garland now this probably is a bit of an exaggerated tale but um but he was a bad dude he went bad and um he was he was living around at the time of the buddha and um the Buddha was passing through this area where he lived, in, in, off in the forest or something, and people said, no, don't go that way, he's a bad guy out there. He's chopping people, and and the Buddha said, yeah, well, I'm going anyway. Because he saw Angulimala was about to claim his 1,000th victim, and it was his mother. And the Buddha saw that if he did this, he would... It would be really it was bad enough, but this would be really bad killing his mom. So he went and put himself in the way, and it said that Angulimala ran after him to chop him, and um, he couldn't catch him, even though the Buddha went lifting, moving, placing. <laughs> maybe not quite that slow, <laughs> walking mindfully on the path, and, and Angulimala' is chasing him, and he can't catch him, and he says, "Stop, stop." And the Buddha said, "I have stopped." You need to stop. And this encounter had this profound transforming effect as so many stories of encounters with the Buddha seem to have had on people. And he he was transformed. He asked if he could become a disciple. I think maybe the Buddha gave him teachings and he became a first stage of enlightenment right then. That often happens in these stories. But he became... um, a monk under the Buddha's teaching, and he became a fully enlightened being, an arahant, as the story goes. It's said that when he went all all around, people threw um, food, rotten food, and threw things at him. And he and the Buddha said, you just have to bear it. But he had a very kind heart. His ahimsa nature came through. And it's said that there's a... a, a chant that's done, the Angulimala Paritta, it's a protection chant, one of the many protection chants that are done. Because it's said that he had, he was very kind-hearted after his conversion. And he, um was on alms round in a village and he heard uh, a woman who was having very difficult labor. And a lot of pain. And he went to the Buddha and he said, is there anything we can do to ease the pain of this person? And the Buddha said, um, go back and tell them that you've never harmed a living being and he Angulimala said I can't do that I'm a serial killer I I've harmed a lot of beings and the buddha said go and tell them that since you have entered the holy life since you've taken the robes and and entered my teaching and discipline they would call that the holy life since you have entered that life taken birth in that life you have never intentionally harmed a being a living being intentionally. And Angulimala said, yes, I can say that. That is true. And so he went back and he said, "Um, Sister, since I have taken birth in this holy life under the training of the Buddha, I have never intentionally harmed a living being. By the utterance of this truth, may your suffering and pain be eased. And it's said to have had this uh, this profound effect on her and she had an an, an easy delivery and to this day that uh, chant is chanted um for people in in uh, giving birth and you can find some beautiful recordings of it online even so um you can see that that it's not fixed the the unfolding of of this flow of karma is not not a one-to-one thing that our, our current wholesome deeds have this powerful effect we can wrap our past unwholesome actions in in uh, wholesome actions in the present <clears throat> so one I'll finish with one short quotation from Sayada Upandita who is a teacher of uh, mine and some of you um, and he was talking about um, a short quotation about the law of karma um, it's it's said that that he says, and, and it is said, that karma is our only true property. The only thing we really own is our actions and the fruits of our actions. Sayadaw said, Our concepts of ownership and control over material objects are basically illusory, for all matter is impermanent and subject to decay. Karma is our only reliable possession in the world. Karma has an immediate effect upon the mind, causing joy or misery depending on whether it is wholesome or unwholesome, and it also has long-term consequences. Seeing life in this way gives us the power to choose the conditions under which we want to live. Thus, the view of karma as our true, reliable property is called the light of the world, for by it we can see and evaluate the nature of our choices. Right understanding of karma is like a railroad junction where the train can choose the direction it wants to go. So uh, uh, apologies for running a bit long tonight. And uh, we'll just have a moment of, of quiet and uh, then I'll ring the bell. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.